This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Back at it on a Friday morning with the 87th episode of Play-By-Play Cast. My name is Joel Godet, and this is the podcast for Play-By-Play Broadcasters, about Play-By-Play Broadcasters, hosted by a Play-By-Play Broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast, diving into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best Play-By-Play announcers in the business. You can always find a way to keep in touch with the program on social media, at PXPCast on Twitter. I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can shoot me an email, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at BSU.edu. So jgodet at BSU.edu for Ball State University. Our guest today is Steve Martin, who is, uh, he's been with the Hornets slash Bobcats of Charlotte and New Orleans in some capacity uh, really since the beginning of the franchises, if that makes, if that makes sense. Uh, he'll dive into it. I don't want to spoil the, the podcast, but Steve Martin got uh, into the NBA when the Charlotte Hornets came to being uh, for the first time. He was in the Charlotte market and uh, worked at the station that got the rights and became the first voice for the Charlotte Hornets. And then Steve Martin followed the Charlotte Hornets to New Orleans. And he was in New Orleans for a couple of seasons before the Charlotte Bobcats came into being. And Steve Martin, whose family remained in Charlotte that whole time he went down to New Orleans, uh, Steve Martin came back and he became uh, associated as a broadcaster with the Charlotte Bobcats, who have since become the Charlotte Hornets. So Steve Martin has been the voice of the Charlotte Hornets since their inception, kind of. Like, same name, two teams. He's He's been the guy between the two organizations. He's been the guy that Hornets slash Charlotte fans. That's the way to say it. I think we can do it. He is the guy that uh, that Charlotte fans or Hornets fans can identify with. One of those two things has always been in existence, and uh, one of them has always been the thing that 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 he he is identified with. Uh, so Steve Martin is our guest. I'll get into to all of that here on this edition of PXP Cast. Before we get to that, a couple things I want to hit off the top. Uh, and I, I hate introductions and I hate long-winded intros. And I know you're here to hear the interview, but uh, I just wanted to get into to some things from my standpoint because uh, I've had a hell of a week. Uh, and I want to start with a broadcast-related thing because it's something we've talked about on this podcast. And if you scroll back through, I don't remember what episode Josh Lewin was, uh, but if you scroll back through the archives on iTunes uh, or on Stitcher or on Podbean or wherever you, you listen or, or stream this podcast, you can find many episodes where people talk about travel nightmares. But I know the Josh Lewin one in particular, we talk about travel because of his... Uh, time doing the Chargers and the Mets at the same time, and you know throw UCLA in that mix as well, and just trying to 
you know, make life work and being in two cities at once. Uh, Michael Regai's episode, I know we talk about it, too. Um, I don't have anything quite as fanciful as anything that those guys have, but I, I have started doing some freelance work. Uh, if you follow me on social media, I've tweeted some pictures and things like that. Uh, have started doing some games on CBS Sports Network. Uh, some college basketball. I've done a couple women's basketball games, uh, Atlantic 10 games on CBS Sports Network. And thank goodness, my travel to the game, to the game, has always been fine. Have had no issues. And hopefully that will be the case again next week uh, because I'm on a late flight. I've got a Ball State game that I've got to hype a flight uh, to get down to Orlando, Florida uh, next weekend. Um, So hopefully that all works out again and fingers crossed out of Indianapolis. But coming home has been like an utter nightmare and disaster of epic proportions that uh, I thought was worthy of the podcast. Uh, The first one was a couple of weeks ago. I did LaSalle at Rhode Island women's basketball. And the Providence Rhode Island airport, while nice, is fairly small. Um, I was on one of the the later flights out, did the game. It was an 11 a.m. tip, gave myself enough of a buffer. Like there were some earlier planes, but I didn't want to push it. So I got myself on like a 5 p.m. plane out of Providence. And the plane had mechanical issues. And I probably could have gotten there earlier. I, I, I had enough time to get there earlier and see if I could have made it onto the 3 o'clock flight and like stand by and got on. I probably should have. I didn't. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take my flight. Well, my flight had mechanical issues and I was going to miss my connection. I forget where. I think I was flying to D.C., I was going to miss my connection, and there was no other plane that could have gotten me home that night. So the very first time I've I've flown for network television, I got stuck in Providence, Rhode Island, for a whole extra night. Uh, They put me up at the Renaissance Hotel, I think. They put me at the airport Renaissance Hotel. They gave me a food voucher for $12 um, that I could use at the hotel restaurant, of which nothing on the menu was $12, but it's fine. We get per diem. Um, But I just still thought it was funny. Um... So that was my very first experience. I had to wake up. I had a 5 o'clock flight out the next morning. Um, I did get a King Suite at the Renaissance because the room they gave me wasn't made up. I walked in and, like, the floor was wet and had blowers trying to dry it. So the, the whole day was a disaster. And I had no clothing to, to wear the next day. So I think I flew in, in what I wore to the game. Like, like, I put it back on the next morning. Uh, so that was week one. Week two was this past week. It was Super Bowl Sunday. I did a game in Philadelphia. Uh, St. Joe's was hosting George Mason, and the game was at four. It ended at six. Again, I wanted to give myself some buffer. Worst case, you know, game goes to double overtime or, you know, I just did a Ball State game against Akron a couple of weeks ago that was on CBS Sports Network, and it went to double overtime. And, like, I've never seen people cut and run faster in my life to try to get to Indianapolis to get their flight out. Um, So I've given myself buffer here. I figure, you know what? I'm going to fly out Monday morning. Whoops. The Monday morning after the Super Bowl, and this has nothing to do with the fact that the Eagles won and like traffic and all that. The Monday after the Super Bowl this week, I was supposed to fly at 8 a.m., 8.07, to Chicago, Illinois, and then from Chicago to Indianapolis. At about 11.30 on Sunday night, I get an email. My flight's been canceled. Now, lo and behold, the flight to Chicago did fly. But the flight from Chicago to Indianapolis was canceled. So they canceled the whole thing and rebooked me. Hindsight, I would have rather flown to Chicago and like driven home. That's not what happened. So I get rebooked. 
I'm now on a 10:15 flight to Washington D.C. and then a 12:20 flight to Indianapolis. I have a radio show, by the way, Monday night. I do our coach's radio show with James Whitford. Have to get myself to Muncie by about 6.30. Show's at 7. Got to get myself set up. Muncie is hour 20 minutes from the airport. All right, fine. I'm going to be home by like 3. Great. Good. Well, we get to about 9.45, and they inform us that the, uh, the plane is the plane's delayed. There's a mechanical issue. It's going to take off at about 11.30. The only problem is that it takes longer than 11.30 to 12.20 for me to get from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. I again was going to miss my connection. So now I've had a flight canceled, a flight delayed so that I was going to miss a connection. I stayed in Philadelphia. I got rebooked, wound up on a direct flight. But it was at 3.30 or 3.15. So I leave at 3.15, keeping in mind I've been at the airport since about 8. 8, 8.30. Um, I finally get on this flight. I land at Indianapolis at about 5.30. I walk in my front door at about 6.30. I did not do the radio show. Um, I had somebody fill in for me. But my two network TV uh, travel debuts have been like airline Nightmare. And I didn't even get Biscoff. I got the Biscoff crackers the first time. No Biscoff on Monday. It's like a punch in the gut. So, figured I would throw my two cents into uh, some travel nightmares that I know we've talked about on this podcast before. Uh, One other thing I do want to talk about, and it's totally unrelated to broadcasting, and then I promise we will get to Steve Martin. Um, I, and this is a civics thing, I was summoned for jury duty this week. I uh, had to report on Tuesday. It was interesting for me because I had a broadcast on Tuesday night. I had another broadcast on Wednesday night. I got there and I I, uh, I said to them, I said, hey, like I'm, I'm willing to be on the jury, but I've got to be out of here by five because it's going to take me 45 minutes to get to Muncie. I've got a, I, I pushed the coach's interview off to my color analyst. I was like, hey, E, if you can take care of this, great. I wound up getting there in time to do it anyway, but I, I made the arrangements. I was like, I'll be there. I'll set up the equipment. We'll go. We'll be good. Uh, for Wednesday, I was like, you know what? Um, you know, let's make sure everything's taken care of in advance so that if it need be, I can sit down, we can tape the open. I was on TV, tape the open and we can go show and go, uh, made all these arrangements in my head, but I was like, you know what? Odds are I'm not going to get picked for jury duty. So I'll go in on Tuesday. I'll be there a couple hours done. I'll be back at work. Needless to say, I did get selected. My first appearance on jury duty in my life. I was selected to serve on a jury this week. And uh, the case is now over. Um, we had our, our deliberations and, and delivered our verdict today as I record this, yesterday, as you listen to this on time. Um, so it was Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this week. And I, I don't want to get into details of it. But I will say, there is something interesting. You know, I think we all dread jury duty. Nobody likes getting the summons. Like, everybody hates it. And I mean, it's like, what do I have to say to get off of jury duty? Um it was interesting to me. Like I'm a nerd with that kind of stuff. Uh, I thought it like I thought the experience on Tuesday was fun to be able to go through and see how our democracy works. Like I'm a government nerd. Um, I was in. I went to nationals of of YMCA youth and government when I was in in high school. Mike Cousins 
uh, from ESPN, a friend of the pod, um, he and I actually met for the very first time at the national convention of YMCA Youth and Government in 2004, I think 2004, maybe 2003, uh, but I think 2004 is where Cuz and I first met uh, before we wound up going to college together in Syracuse. So, like, to me, it was a nerdy kind of cool thing. I was all about it. But I will say uh, it becomes real very quickly. And if you ever get the opportunity to serve on a jury, uh, I would, A, say relish it. Because it is it is neat to feel like you are playing an important part in our democratic process and to see the inner workings of something many of us never get to see. Um, for good reason, you know, most of us hope to not be in court, like for any bad reason. So like, we're just not around it. And some of us, you know, went to journalism school. So we, we see that kind of stuff, but it's been a while. Um, it was cool to be able to, to see how it all happened, but I will say the process of serving on a jury, uh, and, and the jury that I was, I happened to be on, um, was for a very, very serious, very serious, and very difficult charge. Very difficult charge. Um, it was without a doubt the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, you, you go through the jury selection process you go through it's the voir dire uh, where they ask you all the questions. And the first question they ask you is, how do you feel about being here? Uh, and I, I mean, I can, I can, I think I responded like, you know, anxious, nervous, intrigued, interested. And that was common. That's what most people said. Um, but I know that I can firmly say next time I go through it, the answer will be very different um, from the standpoint of, it's almost a, listen, I've been here, I've done this, and I don't want anything to do with it ever again. Um, I think it was something that was good to do, necessary to do as an American citizen. Um, I think everybody should have to do it. And I think everybody should want to do it because I think it was uh, cool to see. But without a doubt, the toughest, most gut-wrenching, hardest thing I've ever done. Um so today was an interesting week uh, from a broadcasting standpoint. It started with some weird, it started with, you know, doing a game on national TV, started with uh, a travel story that fits right in line with things we talk about on this podcast. Um, and the week progressed from there to something that was non-sports related, but, but very serious, uh, very important and, uh, and life-changing in a lot of ways. And, um, is something I will never forget uh, for a lot of reasons going forward. So just wanted to throw that out there. I've uh, been a really interesting week, been a tough week for a lot of reasons. Uh, without that, uh, or without further ado, though, let's, uh, let's move past that. Jump onto the reason that we are all here. Steve Martin is the voice of the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, he's been on television. He is back on radio in recent years. Here is Steve Martin on Play by Playcast. Enjoy. <laughs> I started in radio, but uh, of course, television is is always uh, a more profitable venture. You're dealing with the bigger companies, um, and you know, so the rate of pay. I, I reluctantly went into TV. Really, to tell you the truth, I was uh, uh, I was doing the Hornets back when they originated back in 1988, and then the third year of the package, 
I'd been doing radio exclusively, and then uh, my boss wanted me to move over to television. So reluctantly, I moved over to television because it meant you had to, when I had hair, I had to comb it. And, uh, had to, you know, look fairly decent. Radio is a different animal. Um, I could go out in a tank top and shorts. In some organizations, that's all right. Not in the NBA, but uh, so it, it changed. It changed things. Uh, it didn't change the way I research for a game. Um, and of course, I had to talk less, you know, because you know the pictures are there. Um, so uh, the one thing I like, well, the big thing I like about radio is that baskets aren't good until I say so because you can't see him. So you're in command of that medium. Television, you're like an usher. You know, Here's your seat. I'll be back to get popcorn. And by the way, uh, that's the 10th straight point that the Hornets have scored. And then you walk away. You know, so, you, so you get out of the way of the pictures in the game. So that was the big, you know, that was a big adjustment for me because I was always used to talking a lot. And for a television announcer, just the same, uh, it took me a while to really learn to quiet down and let the pitchers do the talking. And I found that that was, uh, you know, and then there are some TV announcers, uh, TV play-by-play people who approach this job totally different. They they spend a lot of time researching for what happens when the game is out of shape and you got to start talking about something else. Um, that's always important in television and radio. You can just keep on calling and things come to mind, fine. But you got to keep people into the game because not everybody... Well, I can tell you 100% of the audience does not stay with you from the start of the broadcast, the start of the game to the end of the game. They're in and out. They sample. I mean, radio is measured in 15-minute rates, so the number of quarter hours that you get, uh, but they don't even stay that long. They find out what the score is, and they disappear. So um, you've got to keep them in the battle so that they don't have to, you know, try to figure out who the players are and whatnot. They, they, they really want to know what the situation How's my home team doing? Oh, they're up by five. Okay, well, I'll stay in here and listen, see if they can finish it out. And, um, so that's, you know, that's, that's why radio is a, a whole lot easier and, and a lot more pleasurable, I think. It, it's easier for the listener who can understand what he wants to listen to. If the game's not exciting, play-by-play guy is pretty good and he's going to let you know what the score is, what the situation is, then... He can make his choice and move on, or he, you know, or stay, which is fine. Uh, but I find that most young announcers that I hear who will send me audition tapes will, you know, they 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 assume that somebody is there from tip to buzzer, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, so you, you you've got to make sure that anybody who comes in per chance at the two minute mark of the first quarter knows what the situation is. Maybe you can't recount it for them totally, but you can give them the basics that let them know what's going on. Score, time, who's got the ball, you know. And then by the tone of your call, you can pretty much give them an idea of, you know, how the home, how the team that they're listening to, which is going to be listening to your broadcast, or will seek out your broadcast is doing. So you, know, you owe them that, and if, and if you can keep them locked in, that's great. The more quarter hours you win, the better you are, off you are. So it's... Uh, that's how the battle's always been played from my standpoint. I've got the benefit in, in my current position. I, I get to do radio on the road occasionally uh-huh. at home, and I do some television at home with the, the way that the, the league has worked out their ESPN3 contracts and such. So I, I get a taste of both. And when I talk to people about it, um, the most common refrain I hear is uh, television is easier because you have to talk less. Uh, 
And I kind of think that television is harder because you have to talk less and you've got to pick and choose your battles. And I like the ability um, to be in the flow of a game and to paint a picture when you're on radio. Um, what would you say as far as, not, not that there's a fight between them, but uh, <laughs> which one do you enjoy more because of maybe those battles? Um, I enjoy radio a lot more uh, because you're in command. People are they're hanging on your words. Um, they want you to make sure and tell them who's you know what the situation is. They want to be able to assess it for themselves. Uh, you can help them there, but the, you know uh, as far as TV is concerned, it's it's like I said, you're like an usher, really. And uh, it doesn't worry me. You know, uh, basketball games always take a pattern, really. I, I've learned of being 50 years in this business and 30 in the NBA that, you know, there's a pattern that, that establishes itself. You pace yourself through the game. Um, and for television, um, even though you're piling up all this information to try to fill the dead times, basically there aren't an awful lot of those. You know, if your team's pretty decent, I mean, I've, I've been on the other end too. I mean, I, I started, uh, I'm, um, I guess I'm unique in the, in, the, in the aspect that I have been through expansion twice you know, with the Hornets and then the Bobcats. Um, so I'm not sure I'd wish that on anybody, but <laughs> at the same time, uh, I can remember when I was uh, doing television uh, in my third or fourth year, the team was not very good at all. And unfortunately, what you find out is in blowouts, games get over quicker. I mean, if you look at the, you look at the NBA score sheet, and you'll look at, you know, one of the interesting things I always look at is, okay, what's time of game? You know, where are we? How long does it take us to do it? And uh, usually it's about 210 to 220. If it's a great game and there's a lot of foul shooting and a lot of stoppages, a lot of timeouts, and now a lot of, you know, hey, referee's going to come in and they're going to check a replay or something like that, uh, then you can go 230 to 240. But in a blowout, it's always under two. And in television, you commit to times. You can't just sign off when you want and the game is over. You have to commit to a certain time, period. And most television games are programmed to fill a two-and-a-half-hour slot uh, on the professional level. Now, in college, you can make it two. But on a professional level, it's two-and-a-half hours. Now, if your game is a blowout and your team is getting blown out, then you're going to be down at 158, 150, something like that. The officials bury the whistle and leave. I mean, let's get out of here, you know. And now you're you're responsible. You got 32 minutes to fill because you, you're you're contracted for two and a half hours. Your game ended at 158, and and now it's a race to fill the time. I think that's tougher from a stand from a TV standpoint because you you're sitting there connected to a producer who is trying to make up his own mind what he's trying to do. Um, you're never assured that the pieces you want can come out at a certain time, like the coach. Uh, and if, if you're on the road and your team gets blown out, now you've got to depend on the home PR guy to get you guests to fill the half-hour time, at least two. And I, I, uh, the Bulls were back when I got in the game in 88. You know, Michael was just ascending and... Uh, the Bulls didn't think they had to do anything. And if you were the visiting team and you got blown out, good luck. 
<laughs> you know, you could ask for anybody you want. I'd ask for guys that didn't even play in the game. You know, hey, still good. he's got a suit on over there. He can come <laughs> over here and talk to us and tell us what it's like to, you know, be in the same locker room with Michael Jordan and da 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 da. We couldn't get that to happen. The guy, the guy's name, he's still in Chicago, and, uh, and we used to call him Doctor No. Because the answer was always no. We'd like to have so we'd never ask for Michael. We knew we weren't that stupid. Uh, but you would ask for you know you might get a starter, but likely you'd go you know you look at the you know top eight player or something like that, and then you get to the guys who didn't play, and he said no to all of them. You know and I'm going come on, we got we got to have 32 minutes to fill. Now on radio you don't have that problem. Yeah, and. You know, in radio, the thing is, you don't particularly have a window. Game ends. You got certain amount of programming now. You got a coaches uh, interview to do. Um, you might have something else other than that, and then you're off the air and it can happen at any time. Uh, radio is easier. You know, for the for the station that's taking your game can fill. They just pick up ESPN Radio Network feed again. Oh yeah, sure, yeah. something like that. <laughs> they do. But, uh, you know, from, from our standpoint, we would just uh, – but television was a lot harder uh, from that standpoint because the camera's always on, you know. <laughs> Whether you look organized or not, the camera is always on. I was uh, – <laughs> funny story about that. We were doing a game on the road somewhere. I can't remember where it was. I was working for um, – it was the Charlotte Hornets at the time before we moved to New Orleans. And we had a producer by the name of Lou Schumann. And Lou was one of those old line guys. He produced and directed, which is a very difficult position. You couldn't do it now. There are just too many elements to, you know, these networks that like Fox and all these others have so many elements, so much equipment to run. You couldn't do it. But back when I got into the game, there were, there were probably about five or six guys uh, who produced and directed because they had a three-camera show. They had, uh, you know, they didn't have too many replay tape machines that they had to worry about and all these other special effects that they have to worry about as well, still store and stuff like that. So they, uh, so what happened was the game ended. And so we, and uh, the game ended, it was a good game, uh, so we didn't have an awful lot of time to fill. So the, the producer says to me, okay, Stevie, let's do... Uh, uh, come back on camera, give player the game, take us to break quickly, and then we're going to come back, say goodnight, and get out. So, okay, I got it. Uh, commercial ends, comes back to me. Full, I mean, I am, fill, I mean, the guy has got a close up on me because I, I got the monitor here because usually, you know, you, you know, it's right off to your right and you're going to be able to see what's happening. You know, when they go to interview and they put an effect, maybe, a, you know, it's a videotape or something like that, and, and then you take it a break. Well, what happened was the producer-director put me on the air and then turned around and starts packing up the truck. <laughs> the technical director, who we employ and, and, and goes with us, well, basically, everybody in the truck, all seven people in the truck, aren't even looking at the screens. They're packing their stuff, getting ready to leave, and I'm sitting there talking uh, I, and I say, boy, that's an awfully tight shot. I say to myself, now I can't, I can't press talk pack and ask them, okay, let's roll this, you know. No, you're on and, camera. No, you're on camera. <laughs> so, you know, usually somebody's watching you. you know? <laughs> Only my mother's watching me right now, <laughs> and she can't change cameras. So I'm sitting there, and uh, I go, okay, um, 
player of the game is, uh, well, they'll follow along if they're, you know, in the truck. They'll hear a name and they'll say, oh, yeah, let's put up the... Nothing. I tell them the player of the game, uh, you got so and so, I say, well, you got so and so points, you got this and that and this and that. And I look up and I'm still on camera and I'm going. And then the producer comes to me and says, okay, Stevie, do player of the game. <laughs> and now I'm freezing. I'm going, which one? Yeah. I'm, go- <laughs> I'm going, how many do we have? I'm, I'm, we only got one and I just did it. We'll be right back. <laughs> and then I got on talk back and I said, how many of you people are actually watching this game? I mean, there may not be anybody in the audience, but you guys have to watch. You know, when I do what you say, you've got to trigger the next command. You know, and they said, oh, uh-oh. I thought he was watching it. Or, yeah, I thought he was watching it. Was a, it, was, it, was a, it was a moment in television I won't forget. It's funny because I did uh, I did my first game on CBS Sports Network last mm-hmm. week as we record this, and I did not know about the time fill aspect of it um, oh, yeah. before I sat down. And the producer looks at me and says, "We're on for two hours, no matter what." Right. Um, and he said, "I had a game uh, two, three years ago where we got out in an hour and a half, and we had to fill a half hour." And I was thinking, "Oh my goodness!" And in the game, um, you know, we're going to break, and I'm just out of habit getting there as quick as possible just talk slower slow down uh, so it's interesting that you say that now yeah. and and that that does not sound like a, a fun horror story to have to live through in those situations no. uh, on the radio side of it though let me go back uh to that side because um we'll, we'll we'll uh we'll sit on the enjoyment side of it yeah. uh how did you how did you first get set on radio um what turned you on to wanting to to be in that side of the business uh, I determined at a very early age that I wanted to be in that business. I always had an interest in it. I'm, 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 I mean, uh, we, I lived in Maine. Uh, what that has to do with the next aspect <laughs> means nothing. But uh, we had a big picture window in the front of the house, and it had a curtain. And back then, and we're talking about 1957, 58, well, usually on television, all you had were variety shows, and the host would come out behind a big curtain, everybody clap, and he'd give a monologue and all that, 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 and then we're on, tell tell everybody what what's going to be on the show, introduce the first act, and on we go, you know. So that was what I really enjoyed. I, I you know, and so when I was five or six years old, I wanted to get into this business, and I've the thing that is different about me as opposed to other people who get into this business is that I've never done anything else for pay. Not even mow a lawn. The old man made me mow the lawn, and I was happy to do it. And 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 those were his words. So uh, uh, basically, what happened was I lived in a very small town in northern Maine, and uh, at the uh, in eighth grade, I don't know if they did this to you when you're in school. They usually guidance department decides we're going to have a career day. Well, they had a career day at my school, and of course. I was always interested about the business. I had five radios in my room and calendars and clocks and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they had uh, the list of occupations was radio and television. They're going to have the local radio general manager come in and talk to us. And Well, I signed up for that. And there were about seven or eight of us in, the, in that group. And, um, uh, and it was in April. And did the thing and, and listened to them, very, very interested started listening even more to the radio and then uh the school year ended and it was um it was uh june 18th school year ended got a call on a monday morning first day of summer vacation and the guy who came to speak to us 
in our eighth grade class. This is the same calendar year, so I'm not a freshman yet. I'm a rising freshman. And uh, he comes, so he called, and he remembered I was in the class and asked if I was interested in maybe working part-time at the radio station. Now, you can't draw talent to a station in this small a town that's going to stay there very long because they're always, you know, radio is, a, you know, you're making those incremental steps to get out of small markets into bigger markets. So what happened was is that I, um, uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to come out. And a week later, I'm on the air. I'm on the air. At 13. I, well, I was about 15 at the time. Okay. I was, uh, I was, I was late in my class. You know, I was, I was five and a half when I started school, and uh, so here I am at 15 years old, and I'm on a radio station. I worked for 77 straight days. I couldn't get enough of the place. This is what I want to do, and. Um, so I went through high school. What what, what they have you doing for seventy seven days on the air? Well, I mean, they had news, sports, yeah, music, music, what? everything. Okay, we're talking about a station in northern Maine, up by Baxter State Park in in, in northern Maine. It's out in the middle of the woods, and uh, uh, they had uh, two guys. The station was on from six a.m. to ten p.m. Uh, they had two guys. Work in the station, eight-hour air shifts, if you can imagine that. And then after they go out and do their air shifts, they'd have to go sell. <laughs> so the guy from 6 to 2 is out selling till 4, and then coming back to the station and producing the spots, and then the next morning he's got to get up and do it all over again. So they needed somebody. What they had me do was come in at noon, and I sat. I was on the air from noon to 3. Um, then I would come back at 7. We were a Red Sox affiliate. And the Red Sox would always start at 7.35. And so I would go on the board at 7 and stay as long as the game was on, or, or 10 o'clock, whichever came first, and uh, sign the station off. And that's what I did for 77 straight days, and I loved it, every minute of it. I, uh, you know, and uh, it helped me become a, a bigger Red Sox fan, you know, because I started in 68. It was the year after the Impossible Dream. Uh, and the Red Sox have never been really that bad. They've always been, you know, I, I found it interesting. In 1967, the opening day of the 1967 season when the Boston Red Sox won the World Series, the third home game of the season, they had 417 fans. Now, this was a franchise that was just terrible, just awful, for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden in 67, boom, and... They're sold out all season, and they've been sold out all season ever since that year. So I went to work in '68, and uh, so, and they had a great broadcast team. So that's that that piqued my interest even more, and and that's what I did all the way through high school. Uh, I eventually got some days off. Uh, went through high school, and then the station got sold. My senior year. And. Uh, the guy came in and he wanted. He he thought, well, I can get some big talent in here. You know, well, you know, he got guys out of broadcast school came in. And some some could do something, some could not. And uh, and he said, well, I don't need. You know, thanks for being here, but I'm going to go with these guys. So they cut us down to about one shift a week on Sunday afternoon or something like that. And so I decided, you know, my senior year in high school, go out for football and and maybe. 
this is probably a profession that I can't do the rest of my life, so now what do I do? You know. Then I went away to college, and uh, they had a college radio station, and they said, look, we need guys who have experience, who've worked in radio, keep the station on over the weekend, we're going to pay, you know, a buck an hour. And I said, hey, that's beer money, fine, it's great. And uh, I worked for about three weeks and went in to see where the paycheck was, and I saw this statement, this uh, announcement posted up there, and they said, we've decided to, dedic to uh, dedicate the pay that we were going to pay you guys to more equipment. So you're not getting paid. Then right next to it was a, um, a job opening for a commercial station uh, 12 miles away. And uh, so I said, well, all right, I'm going to go down there and see what's going on. Seems like they should have placed the not getting paid sign in a better spot than right <laughs> next to the here to go to get paid sign. <laughs> yeah, they should have. And I went down, and it was about the same deal. I, I went on the air, and uh, they liked me, so I, I worked uh, I worked nights the first uh, weekend nights then uh, then I worked on Monday night and uh, one of the guys from the station went skiing and he found the guy who called in sick that I was working for and he was out on the ski slopes told my boss he got fired next thing you know I'm working six nights a week as a freshman in college and uh, that's how it went um, um, and I've been you know I've been at this business ever since you want to do play-by-play. -play. Uh, how did you get from there to being a play-by-play -play guy and, and then eventually in the NBA? Well, I, di I didn't. Um, I'd done color or, you know, analyst work in high school. And I always wanted to do play-by-play. -play. We had a guy, we had several guys at the station, older guys, who guys who worked in the paper mill, hung around, they dabbled in radio and they'd done it. And actually, they were very good. Uh, so I never got my chance in high school. And then um, I got to work at the commercial station um, in a town, a city known as Bangor, uh, Bangor, Maine. Um, and I worked at a, uh, an AM-FM combination, uh, and they did uh, a lot of sports, but they did a lot of music too. But, and, and they did high school basketball, University of Maine basketball. And then they did, and they always traditionally always did the Maine High School Tournament, Eastern Maine High School Tournament. And in Maine, they have it in late February because everybody gets cabin fever, you know, so boom, and you go out for a high school tournament all week, and we'll do 42 games. And uh, the guy said, look, I can't do all these games, so I'm going to see what, how you're doing at play-by-play. -play. So 8 o'clock on a Monday morning, I'm doing game one of the tournament. And it went into overtime. And, and I did a pretty good job at it. And now I'm in the rotation. Now I'm, I'm doing play-by-play -play all the time. And uh, I, I would do something like 160, 170 events a year. Uh, so I got a lot of practice and, and went through high school, uh, went through college. Uh, then, I, then they gave me a full-time job uh, and moved me into television as well as radio. I do a radio shift in the afternoon uh, or I do middays. I do 10 to 2 on the air. Two to four in production, and then from four o'clock I do television sports. So go out with a photog, do a story, edit it, and go on at six. And then at six thirty my day was done. So um, did that uh, for about ten years, and then I was look. You know, I I I I sat there and said, Well, I want to stay at this station the rest of my life. I know they they're happy with me. I'm happy with them, but there's no. I can't advance anymore. 
because I'm running into my boss, who's still on radio in Bangor, Maine, at that station. Stop it, really? No, he still <laughs> is. So it's a good thing I left. <laughs> and I, uh, I, you know, I was looking for a job, and uh, they had a, ra- a radio job, do a sports talk show, Davidson Basketball, uh, and do morning sports or afternoon sports. And uh, it was at WBT in Charlotte, 50,000-watt blowtorch. So I, I applied. Um, I got interviewed for the job. I wasn't their top selection. Their top selection pulled out, so they hired me. And now we're in a whole new, big whole new world now. And um, uh, got that job at WBT. And then uh, I was working morning sports on television. And we had a terrible thing happen. A guy who had been on the station since the TV station signed on in 1949 uh, went out one night, got an auto accident, and died. And this was in the early days of having morning news, sports, and weather on television. And it so shocked the station that they just suspended it. And uh, and I was getting ready to, you know, and and... and they had taken away our play-by-play for Davidson because it wasn't making much money. So I'm sitting there doing, you know, I'm doing sports reports, and that's it. And uh, a talk show that I don't like doing. And so I said to my wife, I said, okay, we've been here two or three years, and maybe we do belong in Maine, so let's go back. And I, had, I had my hand on the phone, and the, the station in Charlotte had changed general managers, and as I'm, I'm, call, I'm getting ready to call my old boss in Bangor, Maine, go back. And uh, the phone rings. It's the new guy in Charlotte. He's from WMAL in Washington. He's taken over WBT as general manager. And he says, Steve, I know that you're, uh, you might be a little disenchanted with the way things are going, but I, I would ask you to stay one week until I get there and you and I have a chance to sit down and talk. And I told my wife, she said, why don't you stay a week, see what happens. I did. Good thing I did. Uh, He said, look, a lot of things are going to happen. Professional sports is coming to this market. I don't know how it's going to get here, but there's a lot of rumors that it's coming. Either the USFL, which was active at the time, um, or maybe even something even bigger. As it turns out, about a year and a half later, the NBA is eyeing that market. And... uh, and my boss, Tony Renault, is saying, hey, we're going to be in the middle of it. We're the 50,000-watt blowtorch. We're the station they can't ignore. they got to be here. And sure enough, they were. And the guy and Tony told the, the Hornets, yeah, we're going to do the games, but there's one stipulation. My guy's going to do it. That's it. No search for an announcer. You've got him. Otherwise, take it to a... Take it to a you know, to a 1,000-watt daytime station and see how you do. So you got all the cards. Yeah, I got. I had all the cards. And I had a GM that really believed in me, and then, uh, and that was it. Bang. NBA comes. I got it. And I've kept, you know, I've always had a philosophy that uh, uh, goal number one is to shoot for a job major, majorly play-by-play. And goal number two is to keep number one as long as possible. And uh, this is my 30th year uh, and 50 years in broadcasting. So, you know, I'm 65, and it's probably close to time to 
you know, moving on. And my wife's waited around for 42 years. I hope she likes living with me and, 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 <laughs> and seeing me around every day. But uh, that's how it's gone. Let's talk about the keep it as long as possible side of that, because mm. um, obviously the NBA leaves town and you've probably got a decision to make in there. Uh, walk me through the process of your job leaving and you deciding to go with it, um, leaving your family behind for a couple of years. Yeah. And then the I mean, and obviously the, the Bobcats coming to town had something to do with it, I imagine. But then the inevitable decision to come back to Charlotte. Well, um, so we, we we started the expansion franchise. And when the Saints took over the Hornets down there, they didn't like the name and they wanted to match the market a little bit better. And uh, they decided to change their name to Pelicans, and they asked if we wanted the Hornets' name back rather than turn it back into the league. And uh, the league okayed it, and so the second rebirth of the Hornets was made. And and uh, we got it. We got it back about uh, 13, 14 seasons. So it's in its fourth year. The craft itself. Uh, what makes a good? What makes a good announcer? What makes a good basketball game on radio when you turn one on? Well, I, I think there's a way to make games that aren't close enough interesting, and that's where your research works in. And then uh, uh, the thing about the thing about our craft that I really enjoy is that, especially on the radio side, um, you have a, a little more captive audience because they can't see the game. You're their eyes and ears, and you've got to make it sound. You've got to make them visualize where the ball's at. Uh, which I like to do. Uh, I got into trouble on television doing it when I first started television because I was too descriptive. Um, but it is, it, you know, you, you're the guy who kind of keeps the pot warm, you know, and, and, and makes people want to sample your product. And if they, if they like the way the game's going, or in most cases, 90% of the people who turn your game on are interested in the team you're doing, no matter where they're playing. So you have a, you've kind of got a built-in advantage there, and it, but it's up to you to keep them. You know, and as we say, radio is measured in quarter hours. You only have to win seven minutes to win the quarter hour. So uh, every, every uh, game, you're doing your best seven minutes, and it's just turning it around. Uh, you can't get locked into the situation that somebody's sitting there, you know, People don't listen to radio sports like they used to. They used to sit there, take the radio out on the front porch on a summer evening and listen to a baseball game. Um, I think that would be very hard nowadays because baseball, um, there are so many competing things for your interest, and there's not just three networks on television anymore. There's, I mean, the, the, the whole complexion of the business has changed. Um, how does that change how you have to do it or how you have to go about Well, you got, you got, you got to make sure... You can't have any lulls, even if the game's awful. You gotta, uh, if you're getting battered by about 20 or 30 points, you know, find yourself something that people can hang on to and want to listen to. Maybe you got a player, you know, so-and-so, well, he's never gotten 30 before and he's at the verge, you know, or something like that. Build, find something to build up. Um, and, and tell entertaining stories about players that, that you know, Listeners and people like to hear what what professional players go through off the court, stuff like that. They enjoy that stuff, especially if it's their team. 
They know they're getting shellacked, but they like to find out what so-and-so is doing. And Tell me a little bit about what's on the desk here, because uh, oh. we're sitting here, and, and you've got your prep right in front of you. Um, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about how you prepare for a game. Um, can you kind of walk me through all sure. of the stuff you go through and, and what your charts look like? Well, the good thing about the NBA is that uh, the support staff, every, every, every NBA team is great. And, and when you – uh, when we finish a game and get on the plane, uh, our PR director gives us, you know, we get the uh, uh, we get the next opponent's notes. Hopefully they haven't played, and maybe they're the notes coming into your game. And then there's a variety of other research uh, stuff that I've got, you know, like there might be some stories that every every team, they'll give you game notes, and they'll give you a summary of the, of the game stories that... Uh, their local newspapers are doing on their team. So this, you know, the, so the stuff that we have, I keep uh, two files. One is the legal file, and that has every spotter sheet that I have done that season. So I've got every spotter sheet, hopefully in order, and I always do it the same way. I mean, every every announcer has their own method. Uh, so these are all the spotter sheets that I've produced so far this season. And, you know, you do the stuff like record, home, road, uh, stuff like that. Uh, outside column here is their season high and their career high. And then we have the player, basic information. We want uh, the field goal percentage, the free throw percentage, the rebound average, the assists uh, and blocks and steals, and then their scoring average. Then we have a little, uh, little part of the shell here to talk about, you know, trends with each player. I uh, always like to, you know, how many 20-point games does he have? You know, 30-point games, 40-point games, so on and so forth. And then if there's a trend that's going on, well, last six games, this guy is doing, you know, he's a, if it's, especially if it's something above his scoring average. And then little notes that are important to the rivalry. And then there are other notes. And another thing that I'm watching is, you know, Kemba Walker to, catch Dal Curry not only in three-pointers but at all-time points. You've been uh, more than generous with your time, but I want to ask you one thing before sure. I wrap this up with you as well, um, because I think your job title is a little more unique than a lot of guys in the NBA in that you're also the director of broadcasting, right. so you have your hands on all of the, the operational side of things. Um, a, how unique is that in the NBA? And then uh, B, what else does that require you to do other than just prep and show up and call the game? Um, I would think that it is uh, it, it, it's not necessarily unique. You probably find anywhere from a third to a half okay. of the guys who are in my position also are doing other te- things with the team. The things that I do, uh, two, two thrusts, and this is changing too, but uh, for 29 years of the 30 years that I've been in this business, I have handled the uh, syndication work with the team set up that means basically set up the radio network and we've had anywhere from 50 affiliates down to six and it's my it's been my job to gather those affiliates negotiate with them set up the deals that's what i do in the off season uh and i'll go all over i used to go all over north and south carolina and southern virginia and even over into tennessee when i was building networks of 50 to 60 stations uh, we would pay those stations in the past, and now the business has changed that uh, we, we, we'll, we'll barter tickets with them, but that's about it. So the number of stations has gone down. 
and they really don't work at being your affiliates anymore. They, they treat you like they, they treat any other syndicated programming that they're taking, whether it's a talk show or whatever. Um, we kind of like them to participate with us, help us promote. We'll help them with, with, with uh, um, free stuff to give away to their fans to keep them interested and tickets and, and, and whatnot. And tickets are they're a valuable commodity to us, especially if your team do, does all right. And you're filling your building up, uh, but uh, so I've gotten out of that. I've, I've I've dropped that off. The other responsibility that I have is really to act as somebody that the TV producers can complain to about your facilities, local for television. <laughs> because what television does is that they have producer, director. They'll have a uh, uh, they'll have a guy who runs. Uh, you know he'll he'll he, he will run all the graphics. They'll have uh, and then they'll have their announcers, usually play-by-play uh, analyst and probably a sideline person. So there's a six or seven-person crew, but they're going into a building that's not their own uh, every night, and they're working with a crew of about eleven or twelve other people, technical people like camera people um, and other stuff, utilities, ads other technical people that are helping them put that broadcast together that they don't know. They have to go in and acquaint themselves, and, and for the next 10 hours, this is my crew. Uh, so, you know, um, we have to oversee that. That's part of my function is that I'm on the chain there somewhere for them to call and ask, you know, we've got this guy here. He's not a good cameraman. Can we get another one and something like that? So... Uh, those are some of the things that I, I do. Steve, I, I appreciate you giving me a, a load of your, your off day here on a Sunday. No um, problem. And it's been, uh, it's been fun picking your brain a little bit and, and uh, talking stories with you. So uh, thank you for being part of this, and I, I really appreciate it. And uh, certainly safe travels as you guys uh, traipse around uh, the, the East Coast over the next couple of days as well. <laughs> thank you very much. Appreciate it. Glad you could come in and talk. All right, that's Steve Martin joining us here on Play by Playcast. Many thanks to him for uh, being more than generous with his time. Uh, that interview, as you can tell, was recorded live. Uh, the Hornets were in town playing the Pacers a couple of weeks ago and uh, met him down at the team hotel, uh, sat down. And I mean, that's only a part of the conversation. We talked for a solid like hour and 45 minutes. I mean, he was more than generous with his time. Uh, and it's not lost on me. I'm super appreciative uh, of, of him for doing that and uh, taking the time as I am with, with everybody um, who is a guest on this podcast. Uh, but I won't keep you guys for much longer because of that. We've, uh, we've run over on time, and I was long-winded in the beginning. So uh, let's, uh, let's jump to, uh, to next week. We are off for seven days. Joe Tate, however, will be our guest next week. I'm super excited for this one. We've already taped the interview. I did that last week. Uh, Joe Tate, who many people talk about as being kind of the gold standard for basketball play-by-play. Joe Tate is our guest on this podcast next week. I am psyched. Uh, I hope you guys are as well. Until then, so long. We're playing the marshmallow, so we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.